0: everybody patrick connor here and welcome to the knuckles and gloves podcast we're kind of leaning back into the true crime but staying true to boxing and history as always i'm here with my dude eris pina copy box operator of course my buddy and my brother in boxing history what's up man how are you
1: how's everything man? everything's good over here
0: yeah dude we're uh we we've survived at least hopefully the worst of the winter you <laughs> know we'll, we'll see what happens from here but we're we're alive, uh, and we're, you know, living another day to talk some good boxing history stuff and some compelling stories.
1: We really are, man. This is, um, you know, we were discussing earlier in the week about coming up with ideas for the for the new year for shows and stuff like that, right? And, I mean, there's so many different stories you can come up with when it comes to boxing history. A lot of crazy shit has happened. I mean, even just recently, too, if you want to talk about recent events, considering all the drama that's um, unfolding on Twitter at the moment, right? But, um,
0: (laughs) like always,
1: like always, yeah, Ryan Garcia and all that other shit, but we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk boxing history. And with that being said, one compelling story that we never really brought up was um, a fighter who made quite a name for himself in the late 1970s, right? As a light heavyweight, that is. So let's go back to the mid 1970s now, actually around 1975 ish to be exact. Is that when Bob Foster retired around then, right?
0: Yeah, somewhere around there. Like, I mean, he ruled the light heavyweight division for years. I mean, he was a heavyweight years. champion
1: from 68 up until around, I mean, by the time he became champion 68, he was already had a decent-sized career. So, like, by 72, he was
0: getting a little bit older, 74. Dipped his toe into the heavyweight division unsuccessfully,
1: yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, could exactly. He couldn't always had to scratch that itch and, you know, get beat down for it. But it is what it is. Foster solidified himself as one of the greatest light heavyweights of all time. And even though it was a kind of meh division during that era, he still solidified himself so as one of the all time greats. He retires after getting a gift against Jorge Aljumada. Then it becomes this weird type of era where, like, you know, it's it's kind of muddled. Like, you know what I mean? There's good, really good fighters during it. I mean, especially a couple of them, like John Conti, who's a personal favorite of mine during that era. Like, Conti's awesome. Um, Yaki Lopez was run- during that time. Jesse Burnett. Uh, you had other guys too, like Line Hutchins. And, um, uh, Richie Cates, I'm talking contenders. And then you had the guys who were more, you know, champions that during that point, Victor Galendez, you know, who basically just ran, ran the roost for a good number of years. And one of those guys during that era that like, yeah, he was a solid champion, but one that he wasn't that, I mean, he was exciting, but like, he was an ugly guy to, you know, the way he fought, like he was always foul and there's a lot of shit going on. He was an aggressive, like mauling counterpuncher, if that makes sense. And so, like, what dude didn't have a lot of, you know, not one-punch knockout power. So, a lot of his fights would, you know, go the distance or anything, but they were just nasty, bloody affairs. And that was more or less the state of the light heavyweight division. You know, also dudes like Mati Parlov and Eddie Gregory. So, Eddie Gregory being the name I'm about to bring up again in a second. So, amongst all of this was a fighter who had started his career much earlier, back in, like, you know, late 60s, early 70s. Um, out in Miami Beach, had some trouble earlier in his life, but seemed to have gotten, you know, sort of a steady groove going on. Um, Racked up a number of wins, about 10 or 11 wins to his career, started gaining a following, got in some serious trouble that we'll delve into in a bit, and ended up at the infamous Rahway State Prison. And as he's in Rahway State Prison, um, you know, he ends up working with the boxing program over there, starts developing relationships with people, um, goes goes in there with Ruben Hurricane Carter, of all people, as far as with him, you know, develops a serious reputation to the point where the warden decides, you know what, you've been working with the boxing system over here, you're working with the prison system, everything's working well, I will do everything in my power to get you back into working, you know, in your career if, if you can get someone to back you. So, of course, the guy we're going to be talking about today is James Scott. So, James Scott gets his career back on track, and before you know it, he's going to fight Eddie Gregory. So before we get to that, we're going to get to the beginning of his life, but this is going to be a compelling story we get to. And Scott, when he starts resuming his career, which makes this even more better, this happens on the cusp of what is, in my opinion, the greatest ever in light heavyweight history.
0: Just jammed full of really good fighters and exciting fighters. A number of really good fights and fights with a lot of, you know, extracurricular weight to them and stuff like that, because there's history between the fighters and... Mm-hmm. All sorts of stuff, yeah. A really fantastic division. Well, I mean, um, it
1: was it was a beautiful era, beautiful.
0: Yeah, a really fantastic division, and um, you know, <laughs> Larry Merchant. A lot of the time, I find his his weird kind of poetry like a little bit tedious, but he actually put it really good toward the end of that fight, mm-hmm. the uh, Eddie Gregory fight, the Eddie Mustafa Muhammad fight, that is, and he said something to the effect of, "There have been a number of fighters who were." used to be in prison or were prisoners and had gone on to become champions and or become world contenders. But we have a fighter doing it from prison. You know. So, I mean, that's, that's what really, I think, on, at least on the surface, um, and maybe even a layer or two deep, what makes this story pretty compelling is that a lot of it happened in a way that was so unusual and in a way that could never really happen now um well not not just uh like in terms of the whimsy, whimsy of it or whatever but legally it couldn't happen and now all the boxing programs and prison boxing programs have been shut down at this point um but i mean that's it times were different it was a different world a different country uh different sport and uh that's part of the reason why it's fun to talk about and we'll get into a little more deeper stuff too so I don't want to I, I also kind of like always want to put that asterisk on when we talk about this stuff that we're recognizing we're acknowledging that we're talking about human beings and we're not just you know laughing about any of these situations and that they're kind of heavy sometimes but nonetheless we do enjoy the boxing part of it too and try to keep it light at certain moments so they're fun to talk about in that regard
1: I mean, it's not, I, when it comes down to it, I don't think there's a more compelling sport than what it comes down to it, is uh, boxing. Like the stories that are involved in it, the books that you can read about, like the, it, it's just crazy. Like, I mean, there's wild stories in every aspect of sports out there. Like, how do you think dark side of the ring keeps on getting um series uh, renewed, but like boxing just has some incredible stories. They really, really do. And we haven't even really touched the surface of what's really out there. And, but like, there's always just new ones popping up and stuff that we can discover and all that. So it's like, it's incredible. But I mean, this James Scott one from the moment, you know, he gets out and then he's in the thick of the of the greatest era in light heavyweight history. And then when you hear about his backstory and then you realize how he got to this point from where he came from, it's just kind of like.
0: <clears throat> yeah. He, so I'll, I'll kind of preface this too, by saying that, My other uh, co-host, Bryn Jonathan Butler, wrote a really good long, long form article with Kurt Emhoff about James Scott, and he did some interviews for it too. And so there's going to be kind of like a little couple pieces of here that are lifted from that article. I'm not going to lie. And so that was part of the research too, but I did a lot of my own research trying to Put together pieces and stuff like that. Um, that being said, something that James Scott said at, at some point was that he had a "quote unquote" typical Black American family kind of upbringing, but he meant that as is a negative in New Jersey. Newark uh, at this time was not the nicest city. I couldn't really vouch for what it is now, but you know, I mean. It's a <laughs> <laughs> I, I I couldn't really say, you know, I, but I definitely don't ever hear anybody saying like, oh, you should fucking visit Newark. I've never I been to told that. Newark, yeah. To to live live. Yeah. And you've never told me you should hang out in Newark. You've never I mean, won I, I
1: wouldn't tell anyone to live to go hang out in Jersey in general, but I mean, that's just me. <laughs> so,
0: I mean, you know, with all the New Jersey viewers and listeners, we apologize. I'm just saying Absolutely. I've never heard I mean, that.
1: And yeah, no, I'm on that Gilda Radner when she was back in the day as Rosanna Anna Dana always bashing Jersey.
0: like. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just saying I've never heard that. But um, but in, in his particular case, he grew up in a rough area. And he also grew up, uh, if I'm not mistaken, with a single mother. And he said a single mother who wasn't really around for him him or his siblings, uh, which is a typical tale for a lot of kids in general. And so he wound up looking up to the streets and people on the streets. And that's who he uh, related to and wanted to be, et cetera. And he got into trouble very early in life. Uh, his rap sheet started at around 12 or 13 years old. And from there, he just kind of got into trouble in and out, mostly in. Um, Like, for instance, I found uh something I never saw mentioned in any of the articles was that he was in a car accident. When he was 16 years old uh, in a car with several other teenagers. And the dude who was 21 and was driving hit a drove into a tree and the dude who was driving died. And I mean, <clears throat> this is not something where like I'm. I didn't grow up in a tough area. I didn't grow up in the ghetto. I'm not like, you know, trying to compare myself to that. And I had a lot of opportunities that I'm sure James Scott did not have. But nonetheless, when I became a teenager and I was definitely far more of a knucklehead and did not use those opportunities well and was an idiot and ran around doing a lot of dumb things, that that was me. In a 16, in a car with a bunch of other fucking teenagers, maybe being driven by somebody older, you know, out looking for trouble, you know, something like that. It sounded basically like any any of me or my friends, you know, around that age. So, uh, you know, I guess there's something that's kind of, uh, it, there's something there for a lot of teenagers and a lot of people to relate to. But a lot of his escapades, you know, started pretty early, unfortunately. And by the time he was, I gosh, I want to say uh, they weren't sure about his birth year, but they were pretty certain that they nailed it down in 1947 based on his prison records. So it would have been by the time he was probably about like 17 or 18 was when he was really in trouble. Um, And then basically by the time he was 20 was when they had uh, pretty much a series of armed robberies, burglaries, um, and kind of, you know, semi-violent crimes uh, he could not stay out of trouble and the state just basically said, all right, man, we're sick of dealing with you. So we're sending you to prison. Uh, cause you'll sometimes hear about that. And we've talked about other fighters where they have a long rap sheet or they're in and out of trouble and you know, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes the state just goes, we're sick of seeing you here, dude. Like we're sick of sending you away for 18 months. We don't want to send you away for a year again. We don't want to send you away for six months again. Just you're, we're going to send you away for like eight years now. Okay. Bye. And that's pretty much what they wound up doing. Uh, So James Scott wound up in Rahway State Prison finally after a series of kind of, you know, jailing instances. And he's, according to him, that was basically where he found boxing or was introduced to boxing in prison.
1: He was. um, There was an inmate over there that said, that was quoted as saying when he met Scott, Scott was just a knucklehead going around bashing skulls with like, you know, pipes and things like that. But he recognized that, you know, there was a tough guy there and he talked to him and taught him how to use his hands. And like taught him, you know, instead of like trying to beat people up with pipes or do whatever it was, like constructively become a boxer. Kind of like in the same mold we've heard about, you know, like foreman with the job corps and things like that. Right. And eventually Scott develops one of those type of reputations where he's like you know, one of those guys you just don't fuck with. You know what I mean? In the jail system and be quickly be uh starts racking up wins in the system like you said, in the prison system and things like that. And um so now it's you know you get to the mid-70s and before you know it, how does it it's he gets moved over to somehow he gets like a work um permit so that he's able to get to Miami.
0: Yeah. So <clears throat> well, I'll talk about this later because it's there's just some there I, I got questions. Sure. <laughs> there's there's some stuff going on that i'm kind of yeah,
1: but there was a way that he was able to get rolled to get to a work like you know Adam yeah. state, able to get to miami beach and from there that's when he eventually linked up with uh chris dundee and that's where his affiliation with dundee and uh, later on like at that same tower freddie pacheco because if you listen to the if you listen to the um broadcast when scott was fighting like you'll hear especially on the nbc ones pacheco would be gushing over him because pacheco was with him in his early career in miami beach he was his cut man he was in his corner for those fights so he knew him very well he knew him in the he knew him at the fifth street gym he knew how he worked he knew everything like that so obviously he had a little bit of a bias toward him so yeah this is where scott ends up now and it's the time is around
0: 1974 yeah so the we'll i'll definitely get into more detail about a lot of this stuff later But the guy that he ran into in prison, the guy who more or less introduced him to boxing, or at the very least encouraged him to, you know, steer his channel, his energy that way, was a guy named Alvin Dickens or Al Dickens. Al Dickens. Yes. And so that guy kind of became his de facto prison manager. I mean, and it's almost like a movie. You know what I mean? Like when they they have like the prison movies, and there's like a whole like. Little commissary and trading black market system type of shit, you know, and it, it's it's like that, you know. People have little positions and jobs and stuff like that that aren't official titles, but nonetheless they do that. And that's kind of how it wound up being. This guy Al Dickens was like his manager, Um and at what exactly capacity? I don't know. Like they they're even in Sports Illustrated articles at the time and stuff like that. Like they don't really. They don't really seem to ask too many questions about it. They're just like, oh, wow, that's a funny idea. He's got a prisoner manager. So that's kind of just, they just accept it. But nonetheless, yes, he winds up uh, getting out on, I guess, good behavior and being paroled. And according to him at some point, I don't know when, because it sounded like he was mostly in New Jersey, like because he was getting in trouble in New Jersey and shit. But according to him at some point in an interview much later, he said he, quote-unquote, grew up in Miami. Nah, absolutely not. Yeah, That's what he said. So, I mean, I'm not going to contradict the man, but I don't I don't really could have seen when because he was getting in trouble back in New Jersey. So, but th- that's what he said. So, in any case, he winds up finding his way out to Miami. Like you said, Chris Dundee and Angelo Dundee, but they're running the Fifth Street gym. And, I mean, yeah. you know, This is a different time, like we're saying, but here now, like L.A., New York, New York, less so these days. But, you know, there aren't a whole lot of places around the country that are considered like boxing hotbeds or where you'd go to like for good sparring or something like that. L.A. probably now. But in any case, Miami definitely would have been one of these places in the 1960s and 70s for sure when, you know, 5th Street Gym was popping and there were a lot of names coming through there, a lot of really good sparring, high-level sparring, especially for like the light heavyweight, uh, you know, heavyweight division or so ever since the 1950s, that would have been the case. So it uh, probably even or actually earlier, even the into the 40s. So in any case, um, you know, there are a number, oh, and actually forgot one little thing. We mentioned his name, Reuben Carter. According to the popular mythology or lore, the first person that James Scott ever sparred with in Rahway was supposedly Reuben Hurricane Carter. And he went
1: three rounds with him, which apparently no
0: other prisoner was able to do, so that impressed Carter. Yeah, because Carter was, you know, a legit, uh, you know, yeah, legit world-ranked. It. fighter yeah i mean there's a with all due respect there's a difference between being you know like the best fighter in prison and a world ranked fighter it's just it's just a available opposition and people to learn from so in any case nonetheless he supposedly did really well and held his own and then also in some other instance whooped some heavyweights ass super easily in prison everyone was like whoa you know and so he came out but even so At Fifth Street Gym, according to pretty much everybody who was there, they put him in there with some heavyweight in Fifth Street Gym, too. And he held his own and actually wound up whooping that guy, too. And everyone was kind of like, wow, took notice. This is basically what everybody was saying. So uh, they jumped pretty quickly to make sure they could get him some sort of funding or they could get him some sort of, uh, you know, bankroll him, basically, because that's what they do for fighters that they believe in or that they think are worth bankrolling because they think they're going to be an investment and they'll get return. Um, And that's essentially what they did. There's some question as to whether or not he had actually started his career earlier than what they officially say, because there's uh, supposedly some records of him fighting exhibitions prior to his official pro debut, but, whatever it doesn't really matter that much the point is like you said earlier he went several fights including in his second pro fight he beat the brakes off of the father of Jeff Lacey Hydra Lacey
1: and also in his pro debut um I don't have the book in front of me but Phil Berger you know the punchlines book that he did Mm -hmm. back in the 90s was a collection of his articles uh one of them was on James Scott and
0: I think it was was from Esquire I think
1: Yeah, yeah, nineteen seventy-eight, either before the Gregory fight or after around that time or something. But um excellent article because it goes really in depth about everything that went on with his life, his career, his subsequent arrest, all that other yada yada yada. But I believe and again, I haven't read this article in a minute, but I think they said and it was pro-debut, Scott goes there. I think he was wearing like jean shorts and some sneakers. Like he wasn't even like really prepared for anything. And according to him, and um, he does get dropped, right? He fights a guy named John L. Johnson, who was undefeated. And Scott gets dropped in the first round and then comes roaring back to stop, John- uh, John- to stop Johnson. Everybody at the auditorium in the Miami Beach gets on their feet. They're going crazy. You know, probably, probably, uh, by all accounts, it was a very exciting and good rumble that um, Scott became a crowd favorite immediately just off of his pro debut. <laughs> and then after that fight happened, after the main event or after the card ended, they asked him to come back into the ring again. They said, ladies and gentlemen, once again, James Scott. And he went back in the ring and they all gave him a standing ovation. So after a pro debut like that and everyone kind of falls in love with you because, you know, you have one of them type of rocky back and forth wild brawls. Um, yeah, it's easy to gain good reputation. And like you said, man, Miami – even, you know, with all the world champions that would go there and all the top contenders and people that came out of their gym, there was a plethora of like really experienced veterans and journeymen and others that were always lingering and still fighting. And I mean, Christine D and the Dundees in general, there's never had a they always had like a revolving door of opponents that they're going to put you in with, whether some of them were sketchy and, you know, came and they in had with a lot they- of associations.
0: So, there were always fighters coming from here and there, and other promoters and managers coming through, always.
1: So, if you go through like Scott's record in his initial phase from the early set from 1974 until his career got derailed, he was not fighting like stiffs at all or anything like that. These were like legit guys, even, you know, like I mentioned, the aforementioned Jesse Burnett, you know, earlier in Burnett's (laughs) career. You look at a guy like Burnett and you look at his record, he fought everybody you could possibly imagine. It was a pain in the ass for everybody too that he fought. So these were good guys on his le- you know, record. And you know, judging by do- a box rec, other recognizable names you might notice would be like a David Lee Royster or um Baby Boy Roll, Ray Anderson. Like these Ray were Anderson, guys yeah. yeah, absolutely. These are all good fighters, you know. And Scott is fighting these guys within like his first 10, 12 fights. That's really impressive back then. They were not babying. They were not trying to build his record up fighting a bunch of suspects in cans that some of those guys in Miami beach were back in the day. Look up the name, for instance, um, for people who are listening, look up the name Al Migliorato,
0: who's
1: an insane character in itself.
0: (laughs) um, Yeah. We might do a show on him. (laughs) one.
1: I mean, that is a wild ass story from top to bottom. So like we probably will, but regardless back to Scott, like, That was, you know, he had an impressive uh, thing going on for his career early on.
0: Yeah, the, the, I mean, I'm not going to say that they were like world ranked contenders or anything like that, but they weren't pushovers. They weren't no, set no, up. Dudes. About, these
1: were all like solid guys that most people in the beginning of their career would not be forced to fight yeah. and, in their first time fights.
0: And for a guy who doesn't have a uh, an amateur career at all, much less a lengthy amateur career, we're not talking about, you know, uh, Lomachenko who fought 350 fucking times as an amateur. And then, you know, like he's fighting for a title in his fifth pro fight and people are going, whoa, you know, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but regardless, no, he wasn't in there with pushovers and he was learning the hard way. Um, And so as a fighter, it was already a pretty compelling story because he had already come out of prison. He had already kind of seemed to turn his life around. The problem was that he was starting to have success. And especially after the Jesse Burnett fight, um, you know, he was he was kind of feeling himself a little bit and according to the reports he was breaking his parole and going back to newark uh, like yeah. going back home and visiting home which he wasn't supposed to do i mean you can't cross state lines if you're a if you're a felon who was like out on parole and shit like there's a whole bunch of uh, and i guess just a kind of another little asterisk here just in case anybody's listening to this or watching this and they're just like oh you know here's the cop shit like I'm not going to speak for Eris, but like on this show, you're not going to fucking catch us like doing a bunch of support for cops and a bunch of like. Hey, what
1: do you, mean you can't speak for me. Of course. We I mean, know I'm that. just saying. You know what <laughs> I mean?
0: I'm just saying on this show, you're not going to catch us doing a whole lot of, yeah, you know, yeah. cool. We're not going to be, you know, cheerleading for cops. We're not going to be cheerleading for the justice system, you know, all that type of stuff. And I also try to make sure that people understand that some of the stuff that we're reading and reports we're reading from are coming from like police reports, and so they have to be oh, taken so with so a I grain of salt. just
1: giving you facts of how it unfolds and how for sure. it is. Well, there's no like bias on one way or, yeah, or another. Yeah, yeah. We're
0: not. Yeah, we're not trying to make it's any statements like that.
1: It's literally a story being told.
0: But regardless. He broke the rules. He knew what the rules were, or at least what his limitations were as a prisoner on parole or a former prisoner. And he broke them and he got caught breaking them. Um, but apparently, you know, his his standing as a fighter was kind of overriding whatever minor trouble he was getting into. The problem was that at some point when he went back to Newark uh, in 1975, he had... I mean, this is kind of where it gets like murky here, but let's just say for the point, yeah, for the point of not getting tripped up in the details of the crime, let's just say that James Scott's car was identified as a car involved in a crime that had to do with drugs and murder, and that he was notified of this. And when he was notified of it, he basically kind of, he, like, turned himself in. um, And that when he turned himself in, the cops found evidence that linked him to the crime. And so he was immediately indicted for armed robbery and for murder, which, needless to say, put a stop to his career. Um, And before too long he like like i said just for the purpose of kind of moving forward with the story so we don't get hung up you know talking about the details of the crimes because we get to that in a little bit um he petitioned uh there there was a number of people that he was in contact with who had pull who had influence and could basically try to get a uh, prison boxing program going or more than just the normal prison boxing program where it's inmates fighting inmates, but actually make something of it Um, because they had a fighter who was legitimately on the cusp of being world ranked or I'm, he might've been world ranked. I'm not really 100% certain at this point, like when he got locked up, but he was definitely very close to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was definitely very close to it. If not, you know, if not there. Um, And so that's where the story kind of that as we know it, and as you know, the kind of mainstream story or whatever. So sure enough, uh, the TV networks are for whatever reason, convinced that maybe, yeah, I guess they can set up and get some fights going in Rahway state prison in in New Jersey. And that's exactly what winds up happening uh, in 1978, the very first fight against Diego Roberson, um you know James Scott scores a second round knockout and i think that's where this this portion of the story really starts to kind of take off
1: yeah absolutely so you know it was 1975 when his career got derailed and according to Scott and a lot of other sources he was on the cusp of potentially fighting john conti um for for the wbc light heavyweight championship um whether or not that would have come off And this is—I'm not even talking before Scott even got in trouble. Like I'm—I'm not even sure. Like maybe he was on the cusp of that, but like he did have a number of impressive wins. Burnett was only nine and zero at that point, so I'm not sure how ranked he was himself before, like you know, for um, James Scott to warrant himself a title fight. I mean. At the same time, though, like, yes, he probably was, like, kind of, you know, he was definitely being featured in ring at that point in a couple other magazines and, like, you know, on the verge of, like, moving up to where he was going to be in the top, in um, the higher higher portion of the top ten and with the way his career was going. But, um, yeah, he got caught up in a murder charge where he was back in Newark, like you said, and there was a situation where him and a couple of accomplices apparently went to this apartment to go try to score drugs. And as it went through there, they ended up um, pistol whipping, like, you know, pistol whipping a couple of people, robbing them of what they had in there. And then the person that initially brought them to the house for that all to go down, he gets murdered himself and gets dumped off on the side of the road. And um, the person that got pistol whipped afterwards, correct me if I'm wrong here, he kind of like, he's interviewed by the cops and he's the one that implicated Scott because... Scott tried to say that yes I let the he said I let the people that were that ended up doing the robbery um he said I lent them my car that is my car but I lent them my car I wasn't involved in any of that mm-hmm. and the guy was like so the person who who got um busted up I think his name was uh Leon Leo Skinner or something like that he he comes up and he's interviewed and they was like Scott you know they they were like who assaulted you that night because apparently James Scott said that it was a different guy that looks just like him, that they almost could be brothers. Um, that was the actual accomplice that night, some guy that they called blackjack. And so when they interviewed the person who was assaulted, they asked him, um, they, you know, they asked him, so what happened? And he was like, you know, did blackjack assault you that night. And he said, no, it was it James Scott. Yes. did blackjack put a gun to you that night. No, it was James Scott. Yes. And so, the guy that was assaulted, he even said as well, yes, they looked it was very similar, alike, like they they looked alike, but clearly there was differences, and they implicated Scott. But like you said, long story short, he ends up going to jail for that, and his career is now derailed. You're actually,
0: it's you're 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 right, and we sh- you should kind of mention some of the details because that's part of why they got the boxing to the prison is because he put up a a good story, like about you know a good denial. And uh, and yeah, so yeah, yeah. that's part of how he was able to convince them. And he was very charismatic. And so that yeah, you're right. Uh, part of the detail probably is needed because he was able to convince a lot of people that he was you know wrongly implicated.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wrongly implicated it was a different guy. It wasn't me. So I don't you know we'll never really know. You know what I mean? Like the all the accomplices and probably everyone involved in the case is now deceased. But like even back then, the other person um, who was apparently Scott's accomplice he got killed in another stick up soon after that. So it, it was just very murky, but like you said, he ends up back at railway state prison and for a guy that like had a career the way he did on the cusp of, like he said, as he, he claims he was on the cusp of a title shot, but definitely on the verge of a world ranking or whatever it may be, that is a huge derailment. But as you said, Pat, eventually because he was working with a prison boxing system and he had a lot of support on his, on his hand. And, um, he had you know he had the one thing that he had was a main supporter and this was huge for himself was the support of um the prison warden a guy by the name of uh al hatrick yeah and hatrick was one of those guys that was like at the time much more modernized than others in terms of like wanting to like try to help prisoners at least do more stuff right am i being correct in that like you know like help you know i mean just like do shit outside like you know maybe like make them more fine by giving them more freedom by doing things like trying to help them or whatever it may be and blah blah, blah. and so like he you know there was a lot of controversy involved in that because everyone's very dead set in their ways and best way in the prison system but he was instrumental in trying to help james scott because they had a prison boxing system over there and scott was like helping with them and training guys um notably uh the brother of dwight braxton tony braxton was one of them um, Dwight Braxton, who we'll bring up later on, was around Scott during that time at Rawley. They were sparring like it was—it was a positive thing that they had. You know what I mean? It was like something that the, all the prisoners were like enjoying to do, and it was a popular um, alternative to what they were able to get involved with over there. So mm-hmm. Hashtag told him, you know, I'm gonna be able to help your career if you can find someone that's gonna be able to help you like back this. Then I'll do everything in my power that we can like you know get your career back on track. You'll just have to do it here. And then that's when um James Scott, like, like you said, very charismatic and he's also well like well read and everything like that, well written, he starts writing letters to everybody you can imagine, everybody you can just cold writing, everybody trying to get involved. No one bites except for one guy, Mirad Mohammed. And that's when this thing starts starring again.
0: Um yeah, and I, I actually I there was a a portion of the story that I that I did for That I did forget, and the reason why, um, to kind of rewind just a tiny bit about the whole Miami thing, um, the reason why Scott was able to get to Miami was because he had the support of uh, the Mendoza group, and that was uh, kind of a group similar to how... Both Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier and countless other fighters had been bankrolled by like groups of businessmen and other people who had come together, pooled their money together to kind of bankroll fighters and stuff like that. And they had also gotten the attention of a politi- uh, like a a politician or the brother of a politician, uh, who had been able to kind of you know expedite the process a little yeah. bit, I guess, and get him to Miami. So that was how he got to Miami. But um, in any case, also the associations that you bring up, it was a good human interest story. The association with Reuben Carter, who Reuben Carter had already become a political figure. And he had already like he after a certain point, he realized his career, his boxing career was over. He had sacrificed his career, you know, and his story is its own story. Uh, I think that there's become it's definitely become mythologized over the years uh, and you know, people listen to the Bob Dylan shit probably a bit too much. When look, I'm I'm just being honest. There's the possibility that he was guilty. You know, like. A, did you like the movie? I thought it was it was like a well done movie and well acted and shit. But they took a lot of liberties with the story. I mean, bro, the,
1: the poor the things that they did to the poor Joy Jordello. You know, what I mean, the guy's elderly. Mining is bit like just trying to live on with yeah, his. They memory. made
0: it seem like and Carter and they was had like to robbed. Make
1: it seem like there was some racist robbery shit going on. Yeah, it had nothing he, to do like, with he that. Was, he
0: lost he fair and square. Yeah,
1: you know, but I agree with you. It was a well done movie. I I, I liked it. But it. what it, it was, is,
0: it it wasn't even it was not even really a boxing movie. But I guess it kind of was as far as boxing movies go. It was pretty good. But um, but yeah, they took a lot of liberties with the story. They took a lot, lot of liberties, even just with the backstory of the crime, because uh, they definitely made it seem like people were like out to set him up the entire time. And I mean, it was they like, made up
1: that detective, didn't they?
0: At, well, and it's they made up a lot of shit about like evidence and stuff like that. And anyway, I'm not saying that he was guilty. I'm just saying that I think the popular lore with human, I'm sorry, with Ruben Carter was that he was like, you know, he was he was super wrongly imprisoned and this and everybody knows it and it was super obvious when like that's definitely not the case when you read through anything with the court case it's not that's I saw not I'm the at case. The hall
1: of fame once actually
0: and he, i that's not to say you know oh, i
1: know I'm, I'm not I was, I was gonna just get to that i was like i saw him at the hall of fame once i didn't get to meet him
0: might be in a very nice dude
1: i i don't know I, he and, showed up on the grounds he said if, hi to like two people some people tried to roll up on him and then he just
0: left and and if he was indeed guilty of any of the things they said he was guilty of, I'm that's not for me. Perhaps he atoned, like honestly, perhaps he atoned in life for whatever it was he did. So I, that's not what I'm trying to say. However, just simply saying by the association, uh, James Scott, that association, it was kind of, I think, a lot of writers, a lot of magazines, newspapers, TVs, stations, whatever, saw that and went, oh, look, here's another Reuben Carter. Here's another story that we could jump on this guy who's who's he says he's in there you know he's he's innocent he's wrongly imprisoned and he's missing out on his prime in this sport that's fucking wild and nonetheless he wants to take part in and so it it itself like with the associations and also you know he added some connections too it was a good story and um yeah it, it's crazy even the thought that they would bring like tvs and opponents and everything and set up a ring and shit like that in prison like holy hell the thought of even doing that now is so out there that it sounds like that's from some fucking you know dystopian fucking novel or something you know it's crazy
1: it's interesting so mirad Mohammed, who obviously we would go on uh, with more fame working with like Roy Jones, and then later on, uh, that wild ride with Manny Pacquiao, he um, gets involved with James Scott. And again, for a young promoter who's trying to make a name, not a guy like Don King, who's already established and like he might find it interesting, but also like an inconvenience, or Bob Aram at the same time, like Muhammad is a young promoter who's trying to make a name for himself. He does have connections and everything like that, To not as big as everyone else, but this could be a good way for him to get involved in things. Like, I could see why he would jump on something like that. Like you said, it's all about the story, right? So Scott comes back, finally, after like a a three-year hiatus or so, and he knocks out a couple of guys. I mean, like, no one really huge or anything like that, but just a couple of wins. And at that point, they're able to lure in, at this now, now, the WBA's number one contender, Eddie Gregory, soon to be known as Eddie Mustafa Muhammad. And Eddie Gregory, at this point, you know, we're talking about the cusp of like the light heavyweights. They're on the rise at this point. After Galindo's, Gregory had already been there for a minute. He wasn't even really a part of that era. He was a little bit before then. You know, the same thing with the guy on my shirt, Yaki Lopez. Those guys were still from like slight. They were they were like the in between between like Bob Foster until the late seventies when like side. And Marvin Johnson and them were already there, too. Saad was already there to a small degree, but he was, like, rising in his career. All those guys were still building up. It was like a slow build, you know? And then by the late 70s, when you had Eddie Gregory moving over the raw way to fight James Scott, you had Yaki Lopez at the top, you had this guy over here on my shirt, Mike Rossman, who upset Victor Galendez briefly to become WBA champion, who at the time for the James Scott-Mustafa Muhammad fight was WBA champion. So there was a whole lot of moving pieces over here. And when Eddie Gregory decided to go to Rahway State Prison to fight Scott, um, he was looking at that as just an easy payday. That's all it was. Like he was looking at a dude who was in prison, knocked out a couple of stiffs in, in his words. And even though he had a career before that, it's, there's levels to this. And if he's just been fighting guys and beating up other you know, inmates at Rahway, how is he going to fight the best in the world? Gregory, at this point, had been a longstanding pro, fought a who's who of the late heavyweight division up until then. Um, had a decision over Saad Muhammad, uh, lost a very very close decision against Victor Galendez, and was just always near the cusp of you know breaking through. The thing with Gregory though was that like for all of his talent, he can just kind of be lackadaisical sometimes. You know what I mean? Like he was, he would just go through the motions, and it would be frustrating to every watch him because he was such a natural talent. If he really put his shit together, he would whoop everyone, which he would on some occasions. But then on other times, he would just kind of go through it, and if he, you know, at this point, when he goes to Rawway, he's a four-to-one betting favorite with just the normal crowd and, like, everyone around there with the betting odds, and even in prison, even though everyone wants Scott to win, and Scott's a big favorite among the prisoners to, you know, fight Gregory, Gregory was a favorite among the prisoners um, three boxes of cigarettes to one, so
0: that's what was going on over there. Yeah, the currency, the prison currency. currency, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yes yeah, it's, it's not just shit they say in movies i guess that's legitimate
1: it was definitely uh, legitimate, and if you know so this was like a big thing going on and HBO it was a big production too it was a big very big production and so hbo who was still in their infancy in terms of airing fights at this point this is 1978 mind you hbo was just getting into the early days of sports all right so back in the early in the late 70s not only were they just airing the random boxing match where it might be like an early Sugar Ray Leonard fight because he was already a commentator for them. Or, you know, Larry Holmes at this point haven't even, hasn't even debuted on HBO. Um, or just, you know, other random fights like that. They even aired WWE, uh, WWF back then, events from Madison Square Garden. This is where they were at. So they're just trying to build a following, kind of get anything. The fact that they're going to have the number one contender of the light heavyweight division fight an inmate inside Railway State Prison is something that they're not going to pass up. The other networks will probably will because they don't really know James Scott as an entity like this. You know, they just think it's just a weird thing. But the fact that HBO is like, you know what? Fuck yeah, we'll jump on that. That sounds really cool as hell. So off went Don Dumphy, Sugar Ray Leonard, and Larry Merchant to Railway State Prison.
0: Man, and you know it's it's. Uh it was a pretty good fight like it's a it's a, a hell of a fight i mean it's a really fun kind of like production to watch which is of course it's on youtube you can go find it um cool. and it's you know it's like about an hour hour 10 minutes or something like that to broadcast so you get to see pretty much the entire thing they interview some inmates mm-hmm. uh you know they basically talk to they kind of do a whole pre-fight segment and stuff like that and it's pretty cool um you know, and it's definitely unique. Although at the same time, it's basically what you would see for most boxing programs. It just comes from a really weird place. So, uh, but that being said, the fight itself is very good, and it basically serves as—I mean, I'll let you describe most of it—but it serves as kind of a coming out party to James for James Scott. It, it's definitely an introduction for him to the world. And I mean, you know, there's a lot of hyperbole that you wind up hearing on the back end of the fight and everything, but the fight itself an eye opener
1: huge eye opener i mean again how many people this is back in 1978 right scott has a compelling story but there's no way you can watch footage of his fights from before then you know it's not like any of them shits were filmed and all you can do is just kind of read accounts about his upbringing and what happened to him and how he's in jail and stuff like that so any logical person who was following boxing back then thinking okay an inmate that had a you know a dozen pro fights five years ago how is he going to beat the number one light heavyweight contender who's been dominant, you know, fighting competition, top-flight competition, staying active because Gregory was an active fighter and everything like that. So it just didn't, you know, it just looked more like, I want to say circus act, but just more like a curiosity thing where Gregory was staying busy and it's going to give him publicity because he went to prison and beat their best, you know, they beat their best inmate before he goes on to fight Mike Rossman. That's how it was more or less looked at, you know what I mean? And the first round it kind of looked like that too, because Gregory was, you know, more, he seemed more confident and um, uh, James Scott seemed more of the sense that he was like trying to find his footing and just get like a grasp of what was happening. But once he got an idea of like, you know, by round two, there was a whole different story. That's when Scott was like, all right, I've got a sense of what's going on in front of me. Gregory can't do shit with me right now and started taking command. And he had this like sort of a -a peekaboo style, but, you know, not quite in the sense where he was leaping in with shots that you would see Floyd Patterson and later Mike Tyson do, but he would have his hands kind of right there, move in, and, but everything was just so concise with him. He was strong, and he was like, the pressure that he put on you, and Gregory, who clearly was not expecting a fight like this, was just kind of like, you know, oh, holy hell, and they started taking a beating from it. Each round, he was getting more and more sustained, and you hear the announcers getting more wild by what they're watching because no one expected to see anything like this. And Sugar Ray and Leonard especially, he was really impressed by what he was watching by Scott and Don Dunphy himself and, um, you know, Larry Merchant. It was it was incredible to see as each round you would see this guy that no one thought was going to be able to do this, start beating the hell out of Gregory to the point where, like, Gregory starts having a nasty um, – you know, mouse under his eye and stuff. And even then, Scott took a couple of rounds off. around six, round seven, Scott kind of coasts a little bit and like you know, lets Gregory take the lead. But he's still not letting him completely dominate. He's just relaxing a bit. And then he revs it right back up around eight, nine, and ten. It and beats the shit out of him. And it's kind, of, it's kind of fascinating. You know, it's like that's if that's a coming out party, that is you can't write something better than that. And um, you know, you gotta love the commentary too. At one point. I think it was uh, Merchant who was like, uh, who brought it up. He was like, oh, you know, Don, he was like, he's using kind of a peekaboo style that uh, customado used. And like, obviously Don Dunphy being the voice of the golden age of boxing of the 50s and, you know, 60s, did every Patterson fight. And you hear him, oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. He looks kind of like Flay, And the way he says Flay Patterson was just, or any of those guys, like, the way Dunphy would say it was just nice, right? And nostalgic sounding. And he was like, oh, yeah, he does sound, you know, he does look like Floyd Patterson, except he's not jumping Looks in like a Looks an awful wild...
0: lot like Floyd Patterson. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. why yeah. does every fucking person sound that way back then?
1: And the way he said it, and then he was like, you know, except though he's not jumping in like a wild gazelle or something like that, like Patterson did.
0: Just not using his gazelle punch. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, you know, Scott won a decision, and that was a huge upset and a fight that, like, opened up the eyes for everybody. And – that was when all the networks were just like, give me, gimme, give gimme, give gimme, give gimme, like, think about this. You got a prisoner fighting out of Rawley, just beat the number one contender in the world. He's charismatic. He has a really fun style to watch, and
0: clearly he'll do promos for you. He'll, you know, he'll do it all.
1: And like, this is just you know, ratings thrown at you like this. Basically, like everyone's gonna be compelled to watch something like that. So that's where we're at.
0: And it's and it's the that classical fucking mixture that we are very familiar with now especially with like jake paul and everything where they're well under the fucking understanding that people are going to tune in because they're mad and they can't fucking stand the idea of a fucking prisoner doing this shit they're gonna Mm -hmm. tune in and watch the fight all the same and they don't care so they you know start to understand okay well let's bank on this shit I mean, that's. I don't know that it's like that for James Scott. I think that at least on some level, he sh- he really believed in himself, and he, which he should have, especially after that fight. You know, uh, defeating a top contender who was uh, an experienced fighter in the light heavyweight division and who's already taken on other top contenders. You know, it's this is yeah. a massive confidence booster.
1: And it's one of those things that it's like at this point, if you listen to him after he beats that. um Eddie Gregory, later on, Mustafa Muhammad, he, you know, he says in the interview afterwards, he was like, you know what, I'm going to give him a rematch after I beat Mike Rossman. Because that was his whole plan, was that he was, he was thinking he was going to fight rossman rossman's dad, uh, dad was there, probably scouting Gregory more than he was trying to scout uh, James Scott. And I'm sure his eyes were open. He was like, you know what, ain't no way we're going to have my kid fight that motherfucker after that fight. <laughs> um, it, but it became moot. Anyways, because... Jimmy
0: Piano is a classic scoundrel of the era, dude. (laughs) Trust me. The guy's a scoundrel.
1: I'm sure. I'm sure. And after Rossman ends up losing a rematch with Galindez anyways, um, what ends up happening is that Galindez um, was initially supposed to fight Marvin Johnson. He ran edges on that. He was like, I don't want to do it. So the WBA strips him. And... After he beats Gregory, it's kind of looking now. It's after well, I'm jumping the gun a little bit here. Like after so let's go back with his chronologically with his career, right? Because I just realized let's jump the gun. So he beats Richie Cates after that fight. Like they bring mm-hmm. Richie Cates That's a that's a big one in itself, too. Like Cates was a very good fighter and one of those dudes who been around the bush, like fought Galindez, fought everybody you can imagine, and would end up winding up fighting into the mid 80s, just an overall tough as nails guy. So Him stopping Richie Cates in the last round proved that the Eddie Gregory fight was no fluke, like, you know, proved him to be a worthy contender. And then from there, he fights Bunny Johnson. And I brought this fight up to you earlier uh, when we were talking about it. I never seen footage of it until yesterday. And what makes it fascinating is that Johnson took the fight on 10 days notice, like three different opponents. Yaki Lopez was supposed to fight. He pulled out. Um, Bonzel Johnson another light heavyweight contender from that era, was supposed to fight, he, and then he pulled out. And then Jerry Celestine, another contender, he pulls out. So Bonnie Johnson, who I know we've talked about on the show before, and a very tough, you know, guy, over,
0: um, overseas guy. First, bl- first black British heavyweight champion.
1: Yeah. And a dude who would put an absolute whooping on Mike Corey a few years later. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, that was bad yeah <laughs> um he takes the fight on 10 days notice god bless him and unlike you know the richie cates fight the eddie gregory fight this one where that was held like those fights were held in a big hall like with paying customers while all the prisoners were kind of like held in another place you know yeah they all. had
0: to they had to watch on some like closed circuit yeah. tv in the, another room or something this fight with
1: Bonnie Johnson was not held anything like that. This was held in an open field somewhere in the prison yard, on a ring constructed by prisoners, and it is the biggest ring you could fucking imagine, bro. It is huge, like you can fit like a hundred people in. It was a gigantic ring, and the and the prisoners are surrounding it, not too close, but just like on the outside of it. There's no there was no paying customers. They did say on the on the announcers, there was no paying customers, but the prisoners watched it with like a. Ten foot wide, like tall chicken fence,
0: (laughs) holding them over. Hostile territory, to say the least. (laughs) Jesus, dude, fucking live from Folsom Prison. (laughs) It's fucking crazy.
1: God bless Bundy Johnson for that, man. I mean, he's a guy that doesn't get talked about enough, and a very tough guy.
0: Well, and I mean, you know, uh, in reality, it was probably pretty safe. Like, you know, the the course it was. I'm not talking about a safe. like like just in general, general. but it's I'm
1: just fear ju- of the whole thing being I'm there.
0: Ju- yeah, I'm just saying like you're 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 not you're this dude's got home prison advantage like a month, you know what I'm saying, but I mean, like you're fighting in a prison, you know, if I were a fighter, I'd be like, this is fucking weird, bro. What are we doing? you know, i so i I got to give the fighters who came gain, went in their credit, you know, because they didn't have to. A number of these fighters could' have just gone and fought whomever anywhere, so they didn't have to do this. So you got to give them some credit because they were stepping into a weird situation too.
1: So at this point, though, this is when things could start getting murky and stupid. Um, Galindez, like I said, going back to Victor Galindez, really quick. He's supposed to fight Marvin Johnson. He re- initially refuses to fight Johnson. The WBA strips Galindez for that. Um, the fact that James Scott has been going through a rough shot of beating the shit out of every light heavyweight imaginable in the top ten deservedly now, he's ranked him on the top. I think he's at the WBA's number one, right? And Yaki Lopez is right at the very top two. There's been a lot of, like, going back and forth that they're supposed to be fighting each other, and it looks upon that they might actually fight each other for the vacant title finally, all right? Like, this is what's going to go down to. And they were going to try to work on it, where they at least get a visa to get Scott Adaraway, because I don't think he can fight for the title there, to, like, you know, fight in Atlantic City or wherever it may be, right? And... That's when the WBA. Uh, I I mean I just hate sanction organizations. Let's just say it like that, right? i Like preface it with that. I've never been a fan of them. We talk about how much you know they're shady and stuff. This is when they decide to get all high and mighty. Is when they're like, "We can't have a prisoner as a world champion," and they decide to um to strip him. And when that happened, uh, they tried to strip uh, Scott of his number one position. And at the same time, Galinda sulked back to the WBA and apologized to them and said, okay, I'm sorry, I'll fight Marvin Johnson now. And so they gave him back the championship. So it all just became moot in general, you know? And Johnson ends up knocking Glenda's outbreak in his John, finishing his career more or less. And um, Johnson, uh, Johnson, um, James Scott at this point is still going through a collection of the contenders that are willing to fight him.
0: Yeah, dude, it's... It's it's like I said, it's a situation where it's probably tough if you're a fighter to be like, "Eh, I'll give up my position and then go fight somebody in a fucking prison. But I mean, you know, the the sanctioning organizations, they pick and choose when to be, you know, ethical and moral and stuff like that. And this was a situation where all throughout the 70s. Uh first of all the WBA was fucking with the light heavyweight division something fierce. I mean both sanctioning organizations were but we talked about this the other day. Uh Bob Foster part of part of his bitterness that lasted into his old age. Um you know, perhaps until death cuz the dude was just a bitter bitter man about his career. And a big part of that was that he had been stripped of the WBA light heavyweight belt. And then Vicente Rondon wound up getting more or less gifted the belt. And then Bob Foster was pissed off that he had to reunify that fucking belt and absolutely took Rondon's head off. Like, you know, that was a brutal. You could tell he was mad when he scored that knockout. Bro, he ruined poor Rondon's career, man. He was mad. You know, Rondon gets caught up on the ropes and then he just fucking just crashes them. But, you know, the but the point being, the WBA had been dipping their fingers into this shit uh, way too much. And then again, they started getting a little bit too handsy and they had voted at their annual convention at like, you know, it's it's some crazy rate. Like, you know, they had like sixty five people voting and it was like sixty four to one to strip him of his fucking uh you know his ranking or something like that it was crazy so so why who i don't know why did they abruptly kind of uh decide to do that i don't know but clearly i think that this was at least part of when james scott started to develop the idea or maybe just push the idea that you know kind of the boxing the people in boxing were out to get him too Absolutely,
1: it was. You would hear it in his interviews. You know, while he was constantly challenging guys, either Sad Mohammed or um, Michael Spinks, who was on the rise at that point, or anyone else that he wanted to name. Mike Rossman was on his list for a minute. It was a bunch of different guys he was always calling out. But he would always say the same thing: that people trying to hold him back. There's different devices, and he was constantly at this point too, writing to all the different boxing magazines. It was very, it was very common during the early '80s and late '70s to see a letter. Um, you know, in the Ring Magazine from the comments section, the one that be addressed from James Scott talking about how everyone's ducking him and for various reasons and how the sanctioned bodies are against him. And he had every right to feel that way, especially with the WBA, how they screwed him in that way, you know?
0: Um, They basically used him to, to, you know, push forward their own agenda and then dropped him.
1: And then dropped him. And... Who's to say that if Scott was able to get a chance at the championship that he might have been paroled if he became champion? I don't know how it would have worked, but I mean, it would been a unique situation, but he was never given a chance at that. And you know what sucks is that he did deserve a shot at the title at that point.
0: After the, the Eddie Mustafa Muhammad fight, he, something that he had said was that he addressed the warden during the interview. And he said, hopefully the warden will let me out now. I think that's what he was trying to say was that he was under the impression that if he you know, did X, Y, or Z, that the warden would allow him to leave the prison to go fight away from the prison. And when you were saying that earlier, kind of crossed my mind that I, I, if I'm not mistaken, part of the thing was that they were, the prison was hoping they would get extra funding if he sure. did well and that they had proved that this was a good program or was bringing in money or whatever, that the state would give them extra funding which i mean sounds like the almost like the plot of like the fucking Shawshank Redemption or some shit you know force this guy to go in there and fucking fight a bunch of contenders so you can get some more funding D- speaking of dystopian fucking weird but re- regardless supposedly that was part of the deal and it kind of just started to fall apart especially with the with the WBA yanking that shit away
1: you know and then by you know it's crazy too because he ends up fighting Yaki Lopez finally after a bunch of um failed fights and various reasons for whatever are not happening it ends up finally happening in December of 79 and he beats him. And that's like the biggest win of his career and it ends up being the culmination of where he was going to end up staying at. You know what I mean? And when you think about it, it's like it's 1979. He beats him and he's about to turn into 1980. And even though he's cause career is like, he's still trying to figure out where he's going to be able to go with this. He's on a natural high. Like he's clearly the number one contender amongst everybody in the world. Like, and everyone's looked upon him. I mean, this is an incredible run he's had beating all these guys from starting with Gregory up until, um, excuse me, Gregory in late 78, up until um, Yaki Lopez at the end of 79. That's a huge run for a guy who's fighting at of state prison, you know, and he had a lot of support behind him at that point too. A lot, a lot of support people, you know, writing on, behind, um, on his behalf, trying to offer this and that. And, You know, the networks loved him, obviously, because he was television gold. But by the time 1980 rolls around, you know, when he fights a guy by the name of Jerry the Bull Martin and everyone thinks it's just going to kind of be business as usual for Scott. And hopefully after this one, he'll finally get, you know, the fight that he deserves. And instead, a disaster struck.
0: He had the kind of style where he was aggressive. He would press forward. And sometimes he was like an aggressive counter puncher. Like he'd, uh, he he did not have an easy style to fend off. He was strong. Um, not a super tall guy, but definitely well built for sure not an easy fighter to face, not generally an easy fighter to fend off either. Cause Eddie Mustafa Muhammad, he's a very good boxer, a uh, well-schooled guy. And like you said, sometimes kind of lazy would lapse in and out of it, but nonetheless would usually, you know, if a fighter was not on the level, he he was going to control him and he couldn't really control James Scott. James Scott was not an easy dude to control, but um, you know, he could, he could be caught. You could catch him coming in, you know, type of thing. And on top of that, I, you know, he, He did have a shelf life. He got started late and he had already kind of uh, burned through some of his wick, as it were, by the time he got started, most likely. So by the time he got to Jerry Martin, who had only had one loss, but, you know, Jerry Martin was not considered, uh, at least from everything I can gather, he definitely was not considered somebody who people thought was going to be like the guy anytime real soon. But he was a top contender. And he
1: was tough as nails, man. You know, his nickname was the bull, and he literally fought like that. You know, and during the uh the announce, the announcer said during the fight that a couple of times Martin earlier in his career tried to box and realized quickly that it just didn't work for him. Hmm. Kind of like Bob Muhammad early on with himself too, and after uh, I think it was after he lost the decision to Eddie Gregory, where he decided, you know what, I'm not, I'm just gonna, you know, turn loose after that. And um when you see when you see guys like that, like, that's what Martin was. But the thing was, he was a little bit lanky, but he was strong. He had a strong back and everything, and he put pressure on you. And Scott put pressure, too, but, like, Martin was different. Like, he was head-on type and didn't move back, and he was hard to push back. And Scott, I don't think, was prepared for a guy that was going to come and try to bully him the way he was able to. And like you said, in first round, he can get caught. Boop, boop, he got caught with a right hand, got dropped right on his ass. And that was the first knockdown he suffered since his pro debut. And you hear the crowd, that was a that was a big noise. I think it was what Marv Albert was the announcer. <laughs> oh you know, the voice that he makes when someone that he had when someone gets dropped. <laughs> and um yeah, it was it was a bad fight for him. He got dropped in the first round, he got dropped in the second round, and he gra- I mean to his credit, he gradually built himself back into the fight where like he made it kind of close because it was on the round system as a points to, as opposed to the point system. And by rounds, they only lost by two rounds on two of the cards. But, you know, it's still, that was a major setback. And for a guy that couldn't afford even the slightest of setbacks, that was a huge disaster for him. And that elevated Jerry Martin more than anything because Scott was looked upon literally like his nickname, Great Scott, Superman Scott, everything was implied. You know, the way he was running roughshod over the division at that point, losing badly and getting dropped twice, that matter, to a guy, you know, to Jerry Martin was a huge blow to, uh, to everything.
0: And he had also started to kind of he took a a massive uh, injury outside the ring, too, in that. So with the WBA, um, you know, a part of the reason why they had kind of abruptly decided to drop him from the rankings was that the state had decided to retry him for the murder. So he had gotten he had gotten uh, he was found guilty for armed robbery. But the jury was deadlocked on the murder, but they weren't really deadlocked. It was 11 to 1. It was just that it wasn't unanimous so that they didn't go through on the murder. Um, Because long story short, when you go after, uh, you know, when you go after perps, you know, certain types of crimes uh, or certain types of murder or whatever, it's got to be a unanimous verdict or else it's not, you know, going through. And so that being said, they retried him. And because he was being retried, it was going through this long process of, uh, you know, the retrial and the kind of uh, the appeals process or whatever. And the WBA, I think, just decided it was there was too much danger there. They didn't want to deal with the uh, the potential of uh, James Scott getting indicted for murder. And then now they have to deal with the the fact that they've got this highly ranked and potentially, you know, champion who's, a you know, just got indicted for murder or whatever. So a lot of things were just really falling apart. And like you said, going into the Jerry Martin fight, like he he just couldn't afford to misstep. He couldn't, he had already kind of misstepped to get back into prison. Like he'd already kind of burned through. He's this is on his ninth life, you know? And so he couldn't, he couldn't lose anymore. And he lost this fight. Even so he, it wasn't over for him. Like I was saying earlier, very charismatic guy, he definitely squeezed every ounce of blood out of this freaking Rawway Stone, dude, for sure. And I mean, you know, a couple months later they wound up, or um, actually a, a year and a couple months later, I'm sorry, they wound up coming back to Raway.
1: Absolutely. So like he has a an interim fight with a aforementioned that we talked about earlier in the show, Dave Lee Royster, who fought a draw with him in his early careers in, in his early career in Miami Beach, and stops him. And that moves on to um, our next guy, Dwight Muhammad Cowie, you know, then known as Dwight Braxton. Hardened Buzzaw. One of the, oh man, dude, one of the toughest dudes you can ever fight. And it's one of those guys, you know what, we've talked about this, um, not on the show, but like off of it, where it's like, I would fucking hate to fight a guy like Cowie, all right? Short, stout, built like a tree trunk. And doesn't have the style that you think a guy built like that would have, where he would just come in and just kind of wade in, slug in. No, like he was very apt at slipping and sliding punches as he like moved in on a crowd, so it made it hard to really hit him. He would beat the shit out of you with the body, everything. He had a really good jab. He out jab you, even though he was like
0: five seven and light heavyweight, and like he was beat your ass and laugh at you the entire. And that's time.
1: the thing, He had that giant mouthpiece. That was like that covered everything from top to bottom. You know the Apollo Creed one, I want to call it because mm-hmm. Creed kind of had a similar one in Rocky. Yeah, like yeah. giant giant one of those giant mouthpieces that you wonder how he breathes out of it. But he's sitting there grinning at you while he's just beating the shit out of you. And he's kind of taunting you too because he is cold. he's grinning the whole time and like watch the Leon Sphinx fight.
0: All right? When he's like when he's cruising Anybody you. who ever had a big brother? just immediately was taken back to the days when their big brother was whooping their ass, just given a complex mid fight, like, Absolutely. oh no, Jesus,
1: no. Not again. Absolutely. And you know, Cat at this point was building himself up, was building himself up to where he was um he was only 14 and one, but he came from the same system as James Scott. They sparred together in Rawway and they had animosity because Braxton well then Braxton I'll I'll call him Braxton just for where what he was back then, right? So Braxton back then was a guy that came from uh, from Rawley, and they sparred with James Scott. I think he claimed that Scott owed him like three hundred dollars for sparring sessions or whatever it was, and that Scott never paid him. But it was you know a long standing beef, and it's interesting before the fight starts, where if you watch – I watched it last night. the uh, The intro of it and shows you how much of a fucking man that Cal E is, just a tough ass dude. They were like. They interview him, they go, why am I coming to Broadway prison? He's like, to fight a man. Why else? James Scott ain't Superman. James Scott's not that. He's a man just like me. And I'm going to beat him up and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like very direct and very to the point, you know? And how he was feeling himself. Like at this point, he had only one loss. And he's basically learning on the job because like Scott, it's not like he had an extensive amateur career. If you even want to act that, it was a prison career, but he had a very astute trainer and he was coming off of an absolute thrashing of Mike Rossman, that made him an up and comer. Like Rossman got the shit kicked out of him in that fight. So shaking your head, you know what I'm talking about, right?
0: Man, there were a couple times where Rossman just got the got the somebody took the wood to him. Just whap, you know, poor guy. I mean, he was a he was a very good fighter for sure. But yeah, just there were a couple times where he stepped a little bit too far over the line. I think that was one of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was already past it by that point,
0: you know. When he fought Rossman,
1: like, well. Yeah, he'd been around for a little bit. He did. Like, he lost the rematch to Galindez, and um, that was humiliating enough. Remember, I I think I told you when we were talking before the show that the way Galindez um, uh, taunted him, him and his team, because they were very salty about losing their first fight. The way they were taunting him and running up, like, after the fight and doing it. Bro, if I was on team Rossman, I would have taken a stool and ran up to any of those dudes and just clobbered them in the head. Like, I I wouldn't be able to take that. That would have been some shit. That is what made me lose my mind. You know, so deals with that, gets knocked out by a journeyman named uh, Ramon Ronquillo, Ronquillo, which should not have happened. And that ends up being like the ring's upset of the year for 1979 or something like that. And then Cowie comes up and just ravages him. And, like, Rossman was a very stand-up-type fighter, too, so that was just going to play right into Cowie's like, slipping and, you know, slipping and dipping-type style. That was just going to work awful for him, and it was a massacre. So, yeah, Cowie was coming into the James Scott fight absolutely on a high at that point. You know what I mean? He was rolling along, and he he said it. Eventually, I used to be in the wrong way. This isn't nothing for me. This is almost like my homecoming, I'm just going to come in here and do what I got to do. And... This is Scott's last chance. This is like them, like you said, this is the networks throwing him one more bone and be like, all right, if he comes in and beats Cowie, this is like a you know, we'll keep on going with this. But at the same time, the networks were starting to get behind a guy like Cow, um excuse me, like a guy like Braxton Cowie, because look at what he you know, what he was able to do, right? Like he just beat the shit out of Rossman. And he had momentum. And the fact that there was a story, besides James Scott, there was the story of Cow um of Cowie going back to uh going back to Rahway, his old prison fight stomps to fight their top prisoner, you know what I mean? As a and guy who's
0: Matthew Saab Muhammad was already out there too, and his story was already like you know, with all, like, do, with all with all due respect like, to James God. Scott. Yeah. You know, his sto- like Matthew Saab Muhammad's story was like, if you want a human interest story. Yeah,
1: absolutely. You know? And a guy like Scott. It's like him and uh, Saad Muhammad already hated each other. There was a long-standing beef in rivalry where they didn't really think highly. And that was that was the fight that kept on getting mentioned about being potentially made, potentially made, potentially made, and it just kept on falling through. And that would have been a hell of a fight. I mean, that would have been a really fight. around 1980,
0: 79, 80. You know. Yeah, I mean, you put Saad in with anybody, but yes, that would have been a great fight.
1: Definitely. I, I mean, I favor Sod at that point. You know what I mean? Especially if it took place in 79 yeah. because he would have had to go through some shit. He definitely would have got hurt. would have been rocked back and everything like that. But I mean, you know, Sad was supernatural and that's why we consider him the greatest action fighter in history. Like he was just, he was that dude. Right? Yeah. And he
0: hadn't quite been beaten up by that point yet. He wasn't absolutely not. And so back to the fight, um,
1: you know, this was Cowie's homecoming, I guess. And then Scott on his last bone. And what's interesting is that Scott, like we said earlier, right? He was one of those guys walked in with his hands up. just kind of always pressure, always pressure, always pressure. For whatever reason, this fight, he decided to box. And the commentators, Pacheco and Marvaldo, were just kind of even dumbfounded by this. They're like, this is not James Scott. This is not how he tries to do. If he's trying to like show a new Maybe that was Blackjack. Of- yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> sorry yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. but it's like I I was watching it too and I was kind of dumbfounded because all the footage I watched of him to watch him Scott he doesn't find anything like that and it's not to say he looks really awkward or like you know a deer in headlights or some shit trying to box off the back foot I mean on the contrary it's not bad it's just clearly not something that's like his go to and Cowie gets adjusted to it after, like, a round or two. Like, even he seems confused by what was happening. You know what I mean? At first. Not that he was in control, but he was just kind of, like, kind of saying, like, what is he trying to do with this? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, almost then, like he was afraid he was laying a trap. But he wasn't. Exactly. He was just yeah, waiting yeah, yeah. too much. He was
1: just trying to play? Yeah, he was just trying to box and whatever he was doing. And Cowie's just kind of watching, like, well, what are you trying to do? And then eventually he's like, well, fuck this. And he starts rocking and rolling. And it doesn't. And it's not until, like, the fifth round or so that Scott decides to finally, like, wake up. And starts fighting the way he fights and clearly starts landing punches at Rocky Gawi back and, and you hear Pacheco and everyone else like, you know, blah 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 blah. And it's like and then he stops again. You know, it was almost like he was being like uh Mustafa Muhammad at that point, where he's having like gaps in what he's trying to do. And it's it's past it. You know, the flame what he the momentum he had, the the fighting that he had, everything like that were clearly was just like a little past that at this point. And he was even though it's only nineteen eighty-one, he's part of like a older part of the generation. Like there's about to be more stuff moved up and he's not gonna be a part of that crew, and he ends up losing the decision. Well,
0: and you know, if if the prison records are correct, then he would be at this point 34, you know? Yeah. So he's obviously time's running short, you know, anyway, time's running short, and he's gotta be feeling that. But um, you know, he loses this decision, and I think that there's a portion of this, too, that, like, uh, you talk about the the history between um, Ma- Dwight Muhammad Kawi and James Scott, and, you know, part of this also, this entire thing with James Scott becoming kind of like a celebrity within the prison, too. You know, like we said earlier, they interviewed the prisoners and stuff like that, and there's this undercurrent of, like, look, James Scott's really charismatic and outspoken, and he's... And he's seems like a nice guy and you know their interviewers like going back and forth with them and you know doing little promos and all this type of shit he seems super likable right but then you start to hear or read other interviews and people are like yeah he's kind of an asshole he's kind of a dickhead he's not very nice and stuff yeah. like that and it's kind of like what's you know why the why the shady two-sided shit here you know like what's going on Well, I mean, part of this too, with him becoming kind of a celebrity within the prison was he was making purses. He was getting paid. Uh, He was accepting purses for these fights. And so basically, you know, he wound up with money and he was able to spend his money in the prison. And one one of the ways he spent his money when he was fighting was he would eat steak and eggs every day. And that's like prisoners don't get to fucking eat steak and eggs every day. And so you're kind of creating a situation or whoever it was was creating a situation and he was feeding into it where he was now like the elite of the fucking prisoners and they hate his ass because they're seeing this fucking guy getting to eat a bunch of shit that they don't get to eat. And, and there he's going to fucking do training and extra extra this and that and spend extra time doing this and getting out of his cell then and blah, 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 getting treated well by the guards here because they're getting notoriety, the you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that there was a lot of resentment from the other prisoners. And I think that probably Dwight Muhammad Kawi probably felt that too because he was just his little sparring partner back in the day. You know what I mean? And so he probably felt some some measure of resentment or some kind of like get back or whatever that he wanted to get. And, um, you know, that there's a chance too, that that got to James Scott, the the mixture of having to wait because he was somewhat active over a pretty short period of time, but then was still kind of waiting in the wings to see what everybody was going to do because it was, he was at their whim. He had no say and he could only fight when they said, and you know, That probably got to him, but then it also probably got to him that he was having to wait in the sense that, like, he didn't really know what the fuck was happening. So, you know, I would imagine that all this stuff weighed on him.
1: And, you know, I met Cowie. I've met Cowie a couple of times at the Hall of Fame. Um, When he got inducted, I got to spend a little bit of time with him because I was up on the stage with him doing his fist casting. And so the first thing I asked him about, because I was most curious, was the James Scott fight. Not about the Sam Muhammad fights or anything, because I figured everybody always asked him about certain fights. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you just I you never
0: a... apologize for beating Leon's ass like that? Be honest.
1: <laughs> I, never, I never brought up the Leon fight. Yeah. I love Leon too much, man. As a personal friend, that Leon was for me, I ain't gonna bring that yeah, up. That was
0: rough, dude.
1: Man, that's one of the saddest ass whoopings you will ever see. Coldest ones you will ever see in boxing. Yeah, that's history.
0: brutal, dude. And he and he and he loved it. And that will love every every second of it it. because
1: you know, you know, Cowie was feeling animosity from losing to Michael and wanting to get some get back, and he was able to get it because Leon was basically a glorified heavy back at that point, yeah,
0: you
1: know. So that was ugly, but so I'm on stage with Cowie, and I forgot when he got inducted, but I was definitely like probably under 21 maybe or so. And um, we're on stage and we're talking, I'm like doing his hand and stuff like that, and I was like, okay, I ask you a question. And he was like, yeah, man. And I was like, you know, how was it? Uh, I was like, so when you fought James Scott and blah, blah, blah. And the first thing he does is he looks at me. He was like, kid, how old are you? He was like, you wouldn't lie for that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I, and I told him this is probably before YouTube. I was like, I read a lot. <laughs> and I was like, I just read a lot of books, you know? And he laughed. And usually um, he, he laughed and he smiled because you can almost feel like he's still like happy that he whooped his ass or whatever, right? Like there's still something he was holding on to that. He smiled. He goes, he was like, let me tell you, he goes, his bark was bigger than his bite. <laughs> and that's how he was like, I'll just leave it at that.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I, so, I mean, as far as his boxing, that's the end of his boxing career.
1: Yeah, that was the, so I meant to ask you, do you know why his career basically ended because of that? Or was that, uh, was just.
0: A- I think they ended the program.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think um Patrick got moved or something happened with him. And once that ended. And he was the one that was involved with all that. That was, that was yeah. That
0: right. Yeah. Well, and we've talked about this too. Like we talked about it with um, uh, Homeboy with Marlon Starling. Gosh, Man, Ruben Bell. We yeah. talked about, you know, we've talked about it with a couple of other fighters who are either fighting from prison or fighting in a prison program. And I mean, almost like, just like collegiate boxing has largely been shut down the idea of prison, but you can't even in most prisons. Now you can't even throw punches like to train like shadow box. You can't even shadow box. They're not allowed. Um, so, I mean, you know, these kinds of things, are, they don't even do the shit anymore, but that was it. That was the end of his career. And I mean, it was kind of an unceremonious ending as far as, uh, him in his pro career, but that, that obviously was not the end of his story. And like I said, I wanted to bring up some shit, you know, earlier on, um, Because, I mean, just looking through a lot of the stuff, you know, we talked about so much in his career. We did talk about a little bit with the crime that he was involved in and stuff, but some of the stuff just wasn't really sitting well. Like, it didn't seem to me like everything was there, you know, like I I didn't understand. And and I'm not saying that you could ever really find the answers in something like this, because I brought up uh, Ruben Carter earlier and... All we have access to is like, you know, newspaper articles, and then you might be able to find some like, uh, portions of the court cases and stuff like that, unsealed. Um, but there's not a whole lot there because really with a lot of this, like I said earlier, we're relying on police reports. We're relying on the evidence they collected at the time and the technology they had at the time and etc. And also trying to take into account that there's, you know, there was corruption then just like there is now. Um, but Just to kind of rewind a little bit, a teeny bit, 60s, obviously, a lot of civil unrest in the U.S. Um, There was a lot of things going down Uh, in general. The fight for civil rights was not just a hot-button issue, but something that was deadly, something that was um, investigated endlessly by law enforcement and the feds and everything. And then uh, in the mid 60s, especially the uh, like the Nation of Islam, as it pertains to Muhammad Ali, of course, to everybody knows uh, Muhammad Ali's involvement with the Nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad and whatnot. And basically um, this kind of crept into the story a little bit in a way that I was kind of surprised by. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try to organize it the, as best as I can, but it's, it's tough because there's a lot here in my opinion. But long story short, right? So the Nation of Islam, uh, as people know, involved with Muhammad Ali, but Muhammad Ali had car- kind of started trying to distance himself from the Nation of Islam for a number of reasons, least of which, of course, being, uh, not least of which being, sorry, the numerous assassinations and assassination attempts that were happening on people who were involved in these various sects of uh, the nation of Islam or black Muslims. And basically, I, and I swear to you, this will figure in, or at least in a way that I think it kind of does peripherally and weirds me out a bit. And it will kind of come, I swear it'll come back. So just hang tight. Um, basically one of the tenets of the black Muslim belief Uh, I won't speak for all of them or put them all under a big umbrella or lump them into a, you know, solid mass. But point being that many of them at this time believed that there shouldn't be race mixing. There should not be, uh, they were fairly strict as far as, uh, their beliefs, their religious beliefs. I guess I'll just put it like that. And so, um, there was a lot of infighting as far as just like today in within Christian groups within other Muslim groups, etc., people have different beliefs and will squabble to varying degrees. Same thing then, except for a lot of the squabbling had started to get violent. So and within the Nation of Islam, I don't mean to downplay that, but within the Nation of Islam, there was kind of a spiritual leader of the group. And in that group, there was a guy named Malcolm Shabazz, and he was thought to be kind of like the next leader of the Nation of Islam. Well, this guy, Malcolm Shabazz, was murdered uh, seemingly out of nowhere, but it was not out of nowhere. There was actually this string of murders and beheadings, actually, that happened within this one particular group of the Nation of Islam that was led out of New Jersey. And the guy who was second in command, Alvin Dickens, James Scott's manager from prison. So i i mean i knew of his name i didn't know anything about his history because i started looking through this and i'm like all right what who else has he been involved in like because you don't just get like involved in boxing like this out of nowhere right like what do you what do you do like what do, who is this guy and so i started looking him up and i was like why is this name coming up and with all this shit? what is this and i was like well there's you know this doesn't have any sort of involvement like james scott bought you know there's no i don't i don't understand how this would even you know, come to be or why any of it would matter at all. But, um, first of all, James Scott actually, just like Reuben Carter, converted to Islam in prison. And James Scott, his uh, converted name was actually, I just wrote it down too, but I had Rajan Muhammad. So he himself was a Muslim. And then, and and I'm not trying to suggest anything by all this, by the way, I'm simply saying there are connections that are weirding me out, like I said earlier. Um, But then on top of that, basically, there was this series of crimes that this sect of the Nation of of Islam or the black Muslims were said to be funding their uh, enterprise or whatever in New Jersey with armed robberies and and killings, and that basically uh, one of the things that Alvin Dickens went to prison for was him and a group of other guys were in the process of committing one of these armed robberies and shot a cop who was working as a security guard at the time and paralyzed him, and so he went to prison, And then basically, uh, you know, after this, uh, association or whatever, and he was in prison, his son was also involved with a whole other group of kids who did the exact same thing and were found, you know, in his house that he owned, like the cops found all of these other kids, you know, in his house and whatever. And it was kind of a big scandal But nobody ever really, you know, put together all of these pieces. And then on top of that, the kind of kicker that kind of made it strange for me was that when I went back and was starting to look through the case for James Scott, right? Like, so, again, these don't really seem to relate to James Scott. So what? He had a, the, the guy's a prisoner. So, of course, he did some shit, right? So it's kind of a coincidence, but it doesn't relate to James Scott. Well, so going back into James Scott's crimes, right? He went to prison in the 1960s. And that was his first kind of longer prison stint. And when he was let out, he that's when he had started his boxing career. And then in 1975 was the big crime that everybody knew and that he was saying he was innocent of. So according to the official account by the police, again, by the police, um, but this seems to be somewhat corroborated by numerous people and people who didn't really seem to be involved too. Um, basically James Scott went to Newark and on this trip to Newark, picked up a couple other guys and then, uh, picked up one other dude who was supposed to tell them where drugs were. That's right. Yep. And it was in some house that was like next door or nearby this bar. They are, I'm sorry, it was like an apartment complex. They go into this apartment complex and they just by coincidence get into the same elevator of the person who owns the apartment that has all the drugs. So then half of the people go back down to the car. The other half, James Scott and another guy, pistol whip a guy, make him strip naked, and then they rob the apartment of the, the lady who got into the elevator, too, of a few hundred dollars and some drugs. They take the guy up to the roof, and they say, we're going to throw you off the roof. The guy is able to escape back to his apartment somehow, and they all run. And then one of the guys, the guy that they picked up, who was the, you know, the courier or the middleman, wound up getting shot and killed. And about an hour after this all happened, his body is dumped on the street. Witnesses take down the license plate of the car that dumped his body, and the car comes back to James Scott. James Scott says, whoa, I'm turning myself in and letting you all know I had nothing to do with this. I lent my car out. Here's my car. They search his car, and they take off this, these brand-new seat covers. And when they take off brand-new seat covers, they find blood stains and one bullet that I couldn't I I couldn't re I couldn't find anywhere whether or not it was a spent bullet or just a an unused bullet I don't know, but point is there was a bullet, um and that's really what they're going on, and so they get all of these people in they gather them in and the the people who are alive and still involved all point their finger at James Scott and other people who are at the bar identify him as somebody involved. And that's pretty much it, except for one small detail. According to the lady that he robbed, when he pulled out the gun and started pistol whipping the dude, he says, I'm the police. The nation of Islam's taking over the streets out here. Shit. And when I, when I saw that, I was like, wait, what? Why would you say that? Like, why would that be relevant to anything whatsoever? You know what I'm saying? Like, what does that have to do with anything? And like I said, I'm not saying I'm cracking any code or anything like that. I'm just saying that I don't know why nobody else has ever made this association. That like, basically, when the feds had gone back in and done this investigation on this group, they had figured out this entire, like, how the whole thing worked, like how the whole group was structured and all this type of shit. And that Al Alvin... uh and what's his name (laughs) was he was the second to command in this group and was literally giving commands. Yeah. Sorry. Al Dickens was literally giving commands uh, to do shit from prison. And later on, what wound up throwing me for an extra loop is that after Al Dickens gets released from prison, he's released from prison and he goes on to be the leader of not the Nation of Islam, but of this specific sect of the Nation mm-hmm. of Islam or the Black Muslims in New Jersey, the leader, and still claims to be James Scott's manager. And so that basically that forces the New Jersey Department of Corrections to step in and say, uh, technically, legally, he doesn't have a manager. He can't have a manager. We're his manager. Sorry. and ba- <sighs> And basically, you know, like, but but my whole point being is that he's still claiming an association with James Scott and I'm like for what though you know like you're you're out you're out of prison like what you know what are you you you're not having no involvement now you know what i mean so it all just struck me as really strange and also some of the stuff in the report about like they were saying that this group was basically trying to infiltrate uh you know parts of society and that they were trying to create these like soldiers they they called them soldiers that could that could fight and all this type of shit and it got a little the only thing that kind of gave me the stank face was that they fucking said that they were trying to make soldiers learn karate in prison and I was like all right hold on wait hold on now now we're starting to get a little bit fantastical but in any case it was it was still very weird dude uh, and i'm happy if anybody is ever just like hey i want those articles i'll send them to you i'll email them to you there's a bunch of crazy shit in there man
1: well it's interesting too because after the um after the Mustafa muhammad fight you hear um uh james scott with with al Dickinson. that's right you brought this up yeah and he's over there and he goes and um right after the interview So he's talking about, you know, how he wants to fight Rossman next and yada, yada, yada. But then immediately afterwards, he was like, I want to introduce somebody over here. He was like, everybody knows, you know, Muhammad Ali. He was like, where we're from, we call him Clay. He was like, this is the real Muhammad Ali. This is my manager, Al Dickens. He was like, come over here, put the camera on him. And he brings the man and you see Al Dickens sitting next to him. And he was like, what we want. All we wanted, we was like, we want to fight. And he was like, we're making an open challenge to fight Cassius Clay. 10 rounds. Come here and fight us for 10 rounds. We don't want the title. It's just be man to man. And blah, blah, blah. He doesn't go into detail why this fight needs to happen. He just kind of explains that he wants his manager to fight Muhammad Ali in 10 rounds, man to man.
0: And And this is... Right after Muhammad Ali had gone on his world tour and distancing himself from the nation of Islam and, and every, you know, I mean, this is a little after that, but I mean, it, it kind of makes sense that they might be resentful if I'm, if what I'm saying is correct, or -hmm. if there's something to it, in my opinion, that would make sense for why they would be bitter toward Muhammad Ali.
1: It makes sense, yeah, but it was just kind of odd. Out of nowhere, he just wanted that, and then you see just Dickens sitting next to him, smiling away. And first off, it, it, nothing like that would have ever happened. Yeah, you know, was Ali on the tour after beating Sphinx in a rematch? Sure, yes, he was. He was going around and beating, you know, fighting Lyle, Alzado and doing whatever the hell else he was doing in 79. But, like, I, I can't picture Ali going to Rahway State Prison to have, you know, a 10-round exhibition with, one, with some guy over there. All right? And the way Dickens looked anyways, too, it wasn't going to be like he was going to last 10 rounds of alley. so let's...
0: please. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what they were... I don't know what that was all about, but... I
1: have no idea, and it was just... I always... I found that a bit odd, because he went right back to talking about how he wants to fight for the title, what he's going to do, and he also... Speaking of the steak stuff, he did mention also in that interview, he was like, because a merchant asked him, what are you going to do after this fight? And he said, Mr. Hattrick has my... He said, has a steak dinner ready for me, so I'm going to have that, and then do
0: whatever. I mean yeah, there has to be some give and take, you know what I mean? I, I maybe I'm just too cynical, but I'm not I'm just not the kind of person that's like, "Oh, I'm sure the warden was like a really nice guy who was being real ethical." I mean, it was well, funny
1: too because like they they did mention when they were announcing some, you know, uh, the fighters, everyone started cheering. When they announced the
0: warden, they they made an announcement for him. Everyone booed in the place. Yeah, nobody's gonna, you know, nobody's gonna actually like the fucking warden. Who the fuck wants to even like? Why they have to announce the warden anyways? Yeah, they're treating this guy nice, not us. This guy, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, yeah, it's exactly. it's a very well, and I guess to just kind of wrap the epilogue onto this shit. Um, you know, uh, he did wind up, James Scott did wind up getting released, but the thing is he did get retried for the murder. So he got 30 to 40 years for the armed robbery. But the thing is in the state of New Jersey at this time, because of his previous convictions, the state had the option to fucking triple his fucking time served. And they did Jesus Christ. They tripled his time served. So they did. And then on top of actually tripling his time served, and I don't know if they shortened it or whatever, but they tripled his time served, and then they retried him for murder, convicted. And he didn't end up getting out until the early 2000s. Didn't wind up getting out until many, many years later when obviously there was no no hope for anything in terms Any. of boxing. And he, uh, just a few years after getting out, started exhibiting signs of dementia and then wound up having to go live in a facility because he got full-blown dementia and died in, I want to say, 2018 or 2019?
1: Uh, I think a little before then, but yeah. But before that, I I want to say, like
0: 2017
1: or something, around then, I think he passed away. But he was able, you know, one thing for redemption that he was able to accomplish was that he was inducted into the New Jersey Boxing Hall of Fame. And that happened around twenty twelve or something like that, I wanna say. And he was he was there for that. He was present for that. There's photos of him there at the Hall of Fame, you know, and even though he was going through it health-wise probably at that point, you can see the proudness of his face while he's being brought up and, you know, being um inducted. And I looked into that too, to like and I looked into it, you know, his induction year and stuff, and they said that that was like one of those things that was like a touchy subject if they were able to abduct him because of his past and what was going on and stuff like that. Because yeah. obviously career-wise, he was more than accomplished to get in there. But it was just, you know, everything that went on with him if they was able to do it. And once they realized that it would be okay, you know, they went full force with it. And it was fitting for him, you know, something for a guy that went through so much in his life. And, I mean, granted, if he was – you know, whatever was justified or not, everything that he had to go through – It was fitting that he was able to, I mean, what happened with his career, that's the way to put it. What happened with his career at the end of it, it was fitting that he was able to get some kind of, you know, like, um, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Um not remembrance you know what I mean like
0: redemption or
1: yes yeah it like started like redemption at the end of his career like he got inducted into a hall of fame you know what I mean it's not the the
0: recognition stuff. yeah yeah
1: yes yeah yeah he finally got recognized for his deeds instead of getting a chance to fight at the championship it took years later but here he is getting recognized and being inducted
0: yeah you know um there's a, there's no sometimes there's no like you know straightforward moral tale sometimes there's no um you know the bad guy gets his come up in certain the good guy you know fucking wins sure. the day yeah, that doesn't always happen that way you know like i, I sometimes wish it did but life is uh complicated and so you know henry hascup was is the guy who still has a lot to do with the new jersey hall of fame um and he i know he he really does a lot of research and knows his stuff and he takes sure. it pretty seriously. So I don't think he would have even considered inducting James Scott unless he, you know, he had his good reasons and everything for me um, when it comes to like James Scott and the whole like ethics or like the everything behind this tale. Like um, I told you this before, but I think that there's a pretty good chance that I, in, in reality, you know, <laughs> there's a good chance that James Scott was dealt a really shitty hand in life. Yes, He wasn't given a lot of opportunities. You know, he grew up in a really crappy place. And I think that there's, there's room for that to be the case, but for him also to have done some really icky stuff. Well said. Um, But also, you know, for it all to have basically evened out, at least as much as it could have. Uh, You know, he... Got his comeuppance in a way, and in one of the most horrible ways that a lot of fighters do. He died with nothing in, in terms of finances, and up here, yeah. and, uh, and 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 he, you know, and you know what's sad too is that he, he worked with kids too toward the end of his life. So I mean, you know, there's a lot to kind of balance out here. There is. I didn't mean to cut you early. No, but no, like, please.
1: It's one. Of, it's sad too because in interviews before some of his fights you know he's talking to ferdy pacheco and others and he's like i don't plan on fighting that long he was like i plan on having all my faculties intact he was like i don't want to end up with brain damage and yada 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 and that's one of those things it's a sad thing that like in boxing you can't predict who's going to get brain damage one day or not like you know you have a lot of these fighters that in retrospect you look at their careers and they die of Alzheimer's, you know, CT, whatever it may be, like dementia, just put it as that. And you're like, for instance, like a guy like Paul Pender, right? I mean, like, granted, now we look back and we found out he played a lot of football as a youth and stuff that might have contributed to but You look at his overall career, he didn't have a ton of fights compared to a lot of his contemporaries. And he didn't really take a ton of punishment com- yeah. a lot compared to his contemporaries either because he didn't have that type of style. Yet he developed really, really bad Alzheimer's near the end, as his wife said, and when his brain was examined and how bad it was looking stuff like that, you you just don't know, you know. um yeah, Spot didn't seem like he had a long career, obviously he didn't because you know the gaps in between and stuff like that. But uh, who knows about the amounts of mounds and mounds of rounds he was probably sparring over at Rawley and other institutions yeah. and things he was going through over there, you know what I mean? Maybe without headgear. Who knows? We don't know this stuff. So it's like...
0: Yeah, and I mean, I guess not to get too much into like the science of of it, but they don't really know a ton about it yet, but it seems like there's a far stronger genetic component to Alzheimer's and dementia than just the getting hit in the head thing. And that's far more linked to specifically CTE and not dementia and Alzheimer's. But I mean, I was just, I don't know, no, 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 no. I'm not, not to correct you at all, but, but we do see still a very positive correlation between fighters and those conditions. That's what, that's what we're still struggling to understand when I think the overall lesson is just don't fucking get hit in the head repeatedly, you know, just avoid it as much as you can, you know, that's, <laughs> that's the overall lesson, but no, um, you know, it's a crazy tale and it is one of those kinds of tales where, you know, if somebody were to just make a movie about this one day, it may, it makes sense. I mean, how many fucking episodes have you and I done where we've ended and <laughs> we've been like, are they going to make yeah. a movie about, you know, like here's the so- material right here, just make the movie. All right, what do you think was Scott's chances against
1: some of those contemporaries then back then? Because we can think of like some of those fights, and they would have been incredible, right? Like Scott against Conti, for instance. Um, that that would have been a banger, you know what I mean? Like I almost feel like I have to favor Conti at that point because Scott was still kind of younger in his career.
0: Funny, but Vic- Victor Conti was probably a pretty good numpsk.
1: No, <laughs> am I actually, am I pronouncing his lame name wrong too?
0: No, no, you're, you got it. I was, just I was like, holy around. shit. I'm no, like, oh, John Conte, oh, for sure. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, <laughs> I yeah. Like, oh, no, no, I've been bitchering his no, name.
0: No, I mean, if you're British, it's probably Conte. But, you know, yeah, John Conte, for sure. All
1: right, but, I mean, if you think about the time period, not to get too deep into it, Conte was going through some stuff in the mid-'70s as he was champion, eventually he gets stripped, and his career never really recovered from that point. So if you want to put on that time time frame of when that could have happened, who knows, you know? Could have been interesting. Um, the Saad Muhammad fight. Well, Ring magazine actually used uh feature featured that as a as a column in one of their what if um columns back in the day. So Ring back in the in the 90s um used to have a column where they would do like a computer simulation, I think it was, right? Like they would do basically what they did was they did a whole backstory of why of their what could have happened and why they didn't end up fighting. And then they would do a storyline of them actually getting ready to fight they would come up with like a mock press conference they were talking how the fight ended up happening and you know it's going to do that then they would do a round by round you know round one so-and-so did this and that one did that blah blah blah. and like they did fights like that up until whoever would win whether it be by decision knockout, yada 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 and i remember one specifically like they did it for um graziano um lamada they did one for sugary robinson um uh what's his charlie burley um they did one for tommy Hearns, mike mccallum and they did one for james scott and matthew sam muhammad and they broke down why you know what was going on in 79 and what was happening and why they didn't end up fighting even though it looked like it was gonna happen and then they made it to where they built it up um so then they gave you that dream scenario of them like fighting after that you know what i mean okay, Scott was able to get out so he's going to be able to fight and you know, the Playboy Casino in in Atlantic City or some shit like that. (laughs) And um, blah, 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 right? And so, yeah, they ended up having Scott, you know, end up getting stopped in the late rounds after back and forth, typical side thing, but it would have been fascinating, right?
0: Yeah, and well, and I think something you do have to consider too is like assuming we're putting some fantasy scenario on here is that if scott were actually not in prison and eating a normal diet and like training against like sparring mm -hmm. good opposition and shit like that we might have seen a totally different fighter dude i mean considering what he showed when he was in prison whooping up on um eddie mustafa and yaki
1: and all those other guys who are formidable you know fighters it's kind of incredible and then look at it later on too mustafa muhammad after he loses to um to james scott Eventually, he ends up becoming champion. You know what I mean? Like a little bit longer than anyone thought it would take him, but he stops Marvin Johnson. Finally, put it on the performances that people have been begging him to do for years later. And that kind of shows you the the potential of James Scott because he was able to comprehensively beat a guy, a world class guy like that, who ended up becoming a formidable champion for a little while because he knocks he knocks out Marvin Johnson, beats the living shit out of Jerry the Bull Martin, um, and then was. Actually being very highly competitive with Michael Spinks before he either got thumbed or whatever happened is I, you know, blew up and he ends up losing the decision. Like, granted, that guy was a top, top fighter. You know what I mean? Like, Scott was in the middle of that. And I think of, like, just other, like, dream scenario fights I could think of. I mean, clearly they would never happen because of time period. But, like, imagine James Scott against late heavyweight Michael Moore. You <laughs>
0: see your hat right there. <laughs> I mean, my yeah, Moore didn't have the greatest run in terms of opposition at light heavyweight, but he was a but he was a bomber, dude.
1: Not did not give a shit. Just went out there, Joe McClellan style, trying to take your ass off. That yeah. would have been a fucking war, right?
0: Yeah, somebody's going to sleep in that shit. Somebody's going down anyway. Like within like three, four
1: rounds, there ain't no way. Something you
0: know, not a chance. Yeah, Moore at light heavyweight was a scary dude for sure. Oh
1: man, and then you know it's again it's like different errors. Like again, if he kept, if he kept clean, never got to jail, or like it could have been a different chance. Scott could have been a champion, and definitely a, a plenty of different errors. You know, I don't know if he would have competed with a guy like Roy Jones, who was, like extraordinary, um, but a guy like Virgil Hill. I mean, who was a great fighter and stuff like that. Scott would have gave him a run for his money. Uh, Jb Williamson. <laughs> Please, you know.
0: Take his ass into Bismarck. and <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. I definitely would have taken him to Bismarck with three home-cooked judges and everything like that. But, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's just a very fascinating story. And like you said, Pat, it's one of those that, like, I'm surprised there's not been more done on it in documentaries or whatever. But this is boxing. People kind of look at it with, like, a side eye anyways, especially the general, you know, when it comes to that type of stuff. But this is one of those stories that's like, they, they've they done similar stories to this all right they kind of have like think of that movie that um well the wesley snipes movie kind of something similar to that remember remember like in the early 2000s he fights bing rhymes in prison oh
0: fucking undisputed
1: yeah like,
0: <laughs> <done the> <laughs> I i don't think i've ever even seen that but i know what movie you're talking about
1: yeah you know Jesus. i think ving robbins was the champion that comes to jail to fight the <laughs> he gets sent to jail and then wesley snipes is like the uncrowned champion you know as the jail champion they end up fighting that's what that's what happens
0: <laughs> so yeah, that cool movie kind of can't hit. be good but but now i'm now i kind of maybe i need to see it
1: <sighs> i don't think it was good i'm trying to remember it i haven't not You're seen like- it
0: you're like yeah i saw it at 16 and it was like good when i was 16 which means it was, it was probably fight, awful
1: listen the fight scenes weren't bad from what i remember like it's not like actual trying to be boxing shit like they're in the middle of a pit that they would do in jail and like <laughs> slug it out you know kumite style so maybe it was like
0: <laughs> pulling out shivs yeah thinning, but thinning I, can't, I can't recall just
1: sitting there and like having you know in my mind like, a whole, like, backstory and give you play-by-play of what happened in that movie. But, I mean, there's been kind of... Sim- that's what I'm getting at, is that there's been kind of similar stories put out there, but something just done on James Scott needs to be done. Like, whether it's just, like, a documentary or something, like, it should be out there. Same thing with Sad Muhammad. Fuck, just do the whole 70s generation. I mean, my God.
0: <laughs> Dude, I mean, literally, if if somebody had the money and just the fucking motivation to do it, make, like, mini-series, like, pick, like, a fucking division for every decade? Yeah. Jesus. Write You're that right. down! Eris, write that down! Yeah. <laughs> but, but, I mean, it could it could be done. Obviously, I don't have the fucking money to do it, but it could be done, yeah. you know?
1: And it would be amazing, and, like, if you just look back at that, you know, the late 70s of the light heavyweight division and what was burgeoning right there and the guys that were coming up and becoming champions and what was about to go from there it was a magical few years and James Scott for that brief moment fit perfectly into it. And not only that, it was just his persona of being an actual inmate made it even more of a limelight that you're just kind of like, wow, man, what the fuck? And like, you just wanted to tune in for that. So what a fascinating time, you know, when it's a story again, that we've said before, it needs to be told. Um, we just say it in the proper context that we're just, you know, telling it as it is and where it goes from. And, these are just fascinating stories that I just need to, you know, that we're just putting out there, you know.
0: Yeah, one hundred.
1: Or else we'll be forgotten. And uh, yeah, we
0: on. just like to do this too. Like we're not, you know, this
1: is fascinating shit, man. I mean, nothing against the current state or nothing like that, but I mean, you can talk about that and listen to a thousand other ones who talk about it, but like when you want to break down a fascinating story that goes in depth about a certain error and go back to that generation, everything, you can't beat it. I mean, I me mean, from I'm a history nerd, so that's why I
0: talk about, but. <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure, dude. And I mean, it, there are a thousand podcasts out there right now talking about whatever is going on with Golden Boy or PVC or whatever. I mean, great. Cool. That's that helps keep the the ecosystem going and that's good. But the whole point is that like we're not we're not interested in just adding to that. You know, yeah, we got our true. own shit to talk about and this is among that shit. Dude, I appreciate you though, bro, cuz this is this is a lot of fun. Absolutely. Always a blast. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, whether you listened in or watched, we appreciate you. Go ahead and subscribe, whichever method it is, and uh, you know we'll try to get back whatever comments you leave and whatnot. We do appreciate those too. But as far as social media goes, if you are on X, God help you seriously. But go follow my boy Eris Peanut Punch Zone Eris. Uh, follow my account boxing history but also the knuckles and gloves boxing podcast is on x and also facebook and instagram too so if you want to give us a follow on those platforms we appreciate it and Eris, we'll talk soon bro have a good one y'all later everybody